I want to just uh, turn our attention to the, the teaching time, and uh, we do have uh, uh, kind of an unusual passage we're going to look at in just a moment, but it really comes out of just what I think is the spirit of Christmas. I, I, I've always kind of liked Christmas music, but for whatever reason, this year I've wanted to have it on just about all the time. Uh, and, and so uh, at home, I've, I've had it on constantly. Uh, in the office, I'll have it on. And, and just just listening to the words. And, of course, there's a wide variety of, of Christmas songs. And, but what struck me somewhere along the way is a lot of them have to do with home. Have you ever noticed that? I'll be home for Christmas. You can count on me. There's no place like home for the holidays. Or even one's almost a, a plea, please come home for Christmas. And even if they don't use the word home, there's that, that sense of, uh, of calling it to be home. And I, and I think it speaks to something that maybe even gets heightened this time of the year. And that's that, that we long to belong. We, we long to be connected. We long to have a, a place where we are, we are family, that we are accepted. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, you know, that, isn't that really in the end kind of the core message of Christmas? Uh, that, that Christmas is God's invitation to you and to me to, to come home, uh, to really come home. And so that's really what I want us to focus on, to, to come home for Christmas, because I'm convinced that life works best when we're connected to God, when we're close to God, and when we are at home with God. And so what I want us to do, we're going to look at Luke 15. You're thinking, that's not a Christmas passage. But I want to suggest to you it is a Christmas passage because it embodies this message of Christmas to come home, to come home to a father who has made radical provision so that you can come home to him, so that you can be a part of his forever family. And so as we look, look in Luke chapter 15, Luke chapter 15 kind of stacks three parables up on top of each other. And the one we're going to focus on is the third of the three, the longest of the three, the, the parable that perhaps many of us know is the, the parable of the prodigal son. But before we get to that, I want you to see a couple things because this helps us to understand these parables. There are two audiences, if you will, that are a part or kind of the target of this parable. And you have to back up to the first two verses of chapter Chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. So this is one target audience, tax collectors and sinners, they're gathering around Jesus. But then in verse 2, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So you have two audiences. You have this audience of tax collectors, these folks who know we're far from God. We are disconnected from God. But there's another group of folks, these Pharisees, these scribes, who they honestly think they are close to God, only to realize that even though they're very religious, even though in our terminology we might call them very spiritual, very committed, very diligent, all of those things. And yet, with all of that, they are also very far from God. And actually, both of those audiences need to come home. They need to come home to the love of their Heavenly Father. Two audiences and three kind of main characters, if you would. Three main characters that make up this, this uh, parable. There is certainly the father, who is the central character. In fact, is at times you have to think this parable is mislabeled by many folks. It's not so much about a prodigal son as it is about the heart of a father. 
But then there's a son who, to some of you are familiar with the story, he, he takes kind of his share of the inheritance and he runs off and he just wastes it in reckless living and finds himself just scraping by with an existence, uh, just a longing to eat what some pigs are eating in their slop. And then there's an eldest son, the eldest son who is there. He's there at home. He's doing his duty. He's doing all the right things. He's checking off the boxes. But what we discover is his heart's not really beating as the heart of the father either. And these two brothers kind of represent these two audiences, two brothers that need to come home, two different audiences that need to come home. And as we look at this and think about the invitation to come home for Christmas, I want us to just think about what this story tells us about God. What does this story tell us about God? And I know you're familiar with the story, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. But but let's just think about what what does the Father in this story tell us about God? And the first thing it tells us is that God is patient enough not to give up. That God is patient enough not to give up. I love the, the, the picture that, that uh, Jesus painted with this parable. If you find verse 20 there in chapter 15, it talks about the, the father. and The father is home and the son has been gone. We're not sure how long he's been gone. We, we would surmise a very long time. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And you think about what what a great picture this is. Here is this father, and perhaps almost every day he's scanning the horizon, just waiting and longing for that the figure of his son to show up on the horizon. And when he does, he doesn't cross his arms and say, let him come grovel before me, but, but he runs and embraces him and kisses him and there's this there's this patience here he is not going to give up on his son he's not going to give up even though the son perhaps has given up on him and that is the message of christmas that's the message of scripture that god is so patient toward us patient enough not to give up peter wrote these words the lord is not slow to fulfill his promises some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Oh, this Christmas, God says, I'm so patient toward you. I am patient, not that I want you to perish. I'm patient so that you would come to repentance. We have a God who is patient enough not to give up on us. You know, sometimes we grow impatient with people, don't we? Sometimes we give up on people. But this parable says... God loves you. God longs for you. And God is patient enough not to give up on you. But not only is he patient enough not to give up on us, but God is passionate enough to show extreme love. Passionate enough to show extreme love. And so that he feels this compassion, and, and he runs, and he, he embraces, and he's, he's just pouring out love on this, this one who didn't earn it, and didn't deserve it, and probably deserved exactly the opposite. But God's love is so passionate that, that he comes to us, and he gives to us extreme love, not love that we could ever earn or deserve, but the love that we, we, we could have never hoped for, an extreme love, an over and above love. And again, that's the message of Christmas. That's the message of Scripture. The, the Scripture tells us in the Old Testament, the 145th Psalm, the Lord is righteous in all His ways. He's always righteous in all that He does, but and loving, and loving toward all He has 
made. He is passionate enough about you. He is crazy enough about you to show extreme love. And perhaps John 3.16 encapsulates the message of Christmas as well as any. For God so loved the world that he gave the perfect gift, the one and only gift. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God is passionate enough about you that he sent his son. He sent his son to do for you what you couldn't have done for yourself, to give to you what you could have never purchased or gotten for yourself, to give you the gift of eternal life, that none of us should perish but have an eternal and everlasting and abundant life in him. But the picture that this parable paints of the Father is also of a God who is forgiving enough to accept me. He's forgiving enough to accept me. So in this extreme love, he runs and he embraces his son. And then the, 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 the display of acceptance and love continues, verse 21. And, and, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Let's pause right there. He's right. He is right. He has no right to ever be called this man's son again. The way that he has treated the father, the way that he has abused him, the way that he has, has wasted his resources, the way that he has rebelled against his love, he is not worthy to be called his son. That is absolutely true. And it's true of me. And it's true of you. But there is a God who is forgiving enough to accept me. But, verse 22, what a great word. But, the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. And so instead of giving him what he deserves, he he is forgiving enough to accept him. And he pours out these, these symbols of acceptance. He gives to him a robe, a robe that would have been given to the most honored guest of all. But he goes beyond that. He's not only a guest and honored, but he gives him a ring, a ring that's a symbol of authority that he gives to him, an authority that he didn't earn or didn't deserve. And then he puts shoes on his feet. You see, slaves didn't have shoes. Sons had shoes. He was going to come back, and his best hope in negotiation was that he could be a slave. But the father said, I love you. I forgive you. I accept you not as a slave, but as a son. And he puts shoes on his feet. And again, the message, the heartbeat of Christmas, the heartbeat of Scripture is a God who is forgiving enough to accept me. Daniel put it this way. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him. But in that rebellion, he reaches out to us in mercy and in forgiveness along the way. Now, many of you have heard me say this through the years, and if the Lord will allow, I hope to keep saying it until my last breath is drawn. God loves you just the way that you are. He knows your stuff. He knows your baggage. He knows your past. He knows your present. He loves you just the way that you are, but he also loves you way too much to leave you that way. 
Yes, that son's going to be accepted. And yes, he's going to be loved. But the Father is not done in him. And God is not done working in your life either. That acceptance means I accept you as you are. But I am also going to work to make you who I have created you to be. I am going to move in my love and my grace to transform you day by day by day. So that more and more you become like Jesus Christ. That is the God who loves you passionately. That is the God who is patient towards you. That is the God who loves you with the most extreme kind of love. This parable tells us some great things about God. All those encapsulated in what he did at Christmas by sending his son. But this parable also says something about us. Us as sons and daughters. And it tells us there are some things that we need to do. So what does all this mean for me? Well, I just want to draw from primarily the prodigal's uh, experience to highlight four things. The first is it means I need to come to my senses, that I need to come to my senses. All those things were true about the father even when the son was in the distant land. Do you understand that? All of this that we just talked about was true of the father, but there are some things that had to happen in the son's life to experience those things from the father. Back up with me to verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. Here he is, this, this Jewish boy who has wasted a part of his life. He's wasted all of the resources. He, he's just, just wasted his life, and he finds himself taking care of pigs, which is a horrible job for a good Jewish boy, right? And he's taking care of pigs, and he's looking, and he realizes the pigs are eating better than he is. I wish I could eat what they're eating. And he begins to think about home. He begins to think about his father, and he begins to just wonder, you know, it would be better to be a slave in my father's house. And he comes to his senses. He comes to himself. He comes to realize, I have blown it. I've rebelled against my father's love and my father's wisdom and my father's ways. And this is what's happened. It's just, I've made a train wreck of my life. And I, I wake up, wake up. And there may be some of us here who need to wake up. To come to our senses. Romans 13. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. There is that, that, that sense of, of the, the, the nearness of the salvation of God. The nearness even of the return of Christ. And it is a time to awaken. Awaken to our need. Awaken to the ways that we've drifted. Awaken to the ways that we've rebelled against the Father's love. The first step back home involves coming to our senses. But not only do I need to come to my senses, but I need to come clean. I need to come clean. If you're going to come home, you got to be honest. You got to be real. You got to traffic in truth. Keep following the narrative into verse 18. As he, he, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your servants. And he, he just recognizes, I don't bring anything to the table except my rebellion, my sin, the hurt and the pain that I've caused my father. 
Father. That's all I bring. And if I'm going to come home, if I'm really going to come home to God this Christmas, I'm going to have to come clean. The proverb says, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Can I just encourage you this Christmas? Come clean. Come clean. Don't, don't, don't rationalize. Don't justify. Don't, don't muck it up with spiritual sounding language. Don't excuse or accuse. Just come clean. You're not going to tell the Father anything he doesn't already know, right? Just come clean. God, this is, this is who I am. This is what I deserve. This is where I've been. This is what I've done. This is the, the muck of my life. And what you find, instead of being disgusted by that, the Father who already knows that, it was just waiting, was just waiting for you to come clean. Because when you come clean, he can, he can begin to empower you to forsake so that you can begin to obtain mercy. You know, the reason that a lot of folks don't come all the way home the reason that some folks settle for cultural Christianity or, or you know, spirituality or whatever is because in the end, they're more concerned about getting caught than they are about getting help. Sometimes we're more concerned about our reputation, right? Oh, well, what if somebody knows? What if somebody finds out? We're more concerned about getting caught than we are about getting help. When I get to the point where I say, God, I need help more than I need to worry about my reputation, at that moment, I'm ready to come clean. And when I come clean, I can come home. Come clean. Come to your senses. But this parable also tells me that I need to come home. That I need to come home. That it's not just about trying to clean myself up. No, come home. Come home and let the Father clean you up. And so verse 20 that we already looked at begins with these words. And he arose and came to his Father. There comes that moment when you just, you come to your senses and you come clean and you, you know you got nothing to offer, but you come, you come to home, you come home to the Father because He can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And that's why Christmas is so pivotal because God invaded human history. God invaded human history in that little stable in Bethlehem. And in those moments, He broke open a way, a way for us to be reconciled to Him. Jesus would go on to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Oh, please hear me this Christmas. There are lots of religions. There are lots of philosophies. There are lots of ideas. There are lots of moral codes and standards. But there is only one way. There are not multiple ways. There is one way to come home, and that way is through Jesus Christ. It is through belief and trust in the one who came, God who became flesh and dwelt among us, took on a human flesh, beginning the flesh of an infant, lived the life that we should have lived, a life of perfect love and perfect obedience toward his Father. And then he died voluntarily, the death that I deserved and you deserved on a cross. He was buried and resurrected, the first fruits of the resurrection that's to come for all those who are in Christ Jesus. There is a way. That way is the greatest Christmas gift of all, the gift of Jesus Christ. It's the way home. It's the way to be reconciled to your Father. Paul wrote to the Ephesians with these words, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, 
You once were way far away, but you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. But the key phrase is, but now in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, no matter how far away you were, you've been brought near. You now have the opportunity to come home. The message of Christmas is simply this. Runaways and the disconnected can always come home to God. They can always come home to God because God has made a way. And that way is through Jesus Christ, whose invasion in human history we celebrate and remember at Christmas time. Oh, come to your senses. Come clean. Come home. And when you come home, then you come celebrate. Then you come celebrate. Because a party begins to ensue, and there's celebration throughout the 15th chapter of Luke's gospel. Let me just, again, back to 22. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him in the ring in his hand and his his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. There, there is a celebration. There's a rejoicing. And not because you got the latest technology under the tree, but because God has radically altered and changed your life. You've been forgiven and you've been cleansed, you've been restored, you've been accepted into the family, you have new life in Jesus Christ. And there is a celebration that ensues. When Paul wrote about this to the Romans, he says, more than that, we also rejoice. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There there is a rejoicing, there's a celebration that comes into a life that has been cleansed, that has been transformed, that is being made more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Really, celebration is the result of being connected with God. When I am connected with God, celebration ensues. And one of the things that stands out in stark contrast in this chapter is everybody's celebrating except one, the eldest son. The eldest son. He was the only one not celebrating. And through the years as I've studied and taught on this, the Lord gave me a thought, and it's just stuck with me now through the years. And that thought is simply this. You can hang out in the Father's house and not have the Father's heart. You can hang out in the Father's house, and that's what that eldest son was doing. He had been hanging out in the Father's house. He had been doing his duty. He had been doing all those things. But he couldn't celebrate. Because he didn't share the Father's heart. And although geographically he was home, in his heart he wasn't home. And just as much as that prodigal from the far off land had to come to his senses and come clean and come home, so that eldest son who had been hanging out at the house needed to come to his senses. He needed to come clean of his self-righteousness and piousness and pride and he needed to come home to his father's heart and this is what I know that there are going to be a lot of people in a lot of churches over this Christmas season who have a cultural Christianity who chase the latest glitziest technology or show and they may be hanging out in the father's house but they don't have the Father's heart. And their need is to come home 
just as surely as the need of the prodigal in the far-off land needs to come home. And in the end, that's the message of Christmas. That's the invitation of Christmas. God's invitation to you and to me, whether we're in a far-off land or hanging around the house, is to come home, is to come home this Christmas. Christmas songs are a wonderful part of the Christmas tradition, but so are Christmas stories. And a few years ago, I read a story that has honestly now become probably my favorite Christmas story of all. And I have shared that with some of you through the years. And like all good Christmas stories, it bears repeating. And so what I want to do is maybe as a way to just bring this invitation to come home at Christmas together, I want to just read you a story. So sit back. If it helps you to imagine a fire, just imagine the fire. And let Pastor Jeff read you a story, all right? Five-year-old Madeline climbed into her father's lap. Did you have enough to eat, he asked her. She smiled and patted her tummy. I can't eat any more. Did you have some of your grandma's pie? A whole piece, she said. Joe looked across the table at his mom. Looks like you filled us up. Don't think we'll be able to do anything tonight, but go to bed. Madeline put her little hands on either side of his big face. Oh, but Papa, this is Christmas Eve. You said we could dance. Joe feigned a poor memory. Did I now? Well, I don't remember saying anything about dancing. Grandma smiled and shook her head as she began clearing the table. But Papa, Madeline pleaded, we always dance on Christmas Eve, just you and me, remember? A smile burst from beneath his thick mustache. Of course I remember, darling. How could I forget? And with that, he stood and took her hand in his, and for a moment, just a moment, his wife was alive again, and the two were walking into the den to spend another night before Christmas as they had spent so many dancing away the evening. They would have danced the rest of their lives, but then came the surprise pregnancy and the complications. Madeline survived, but her mother did not. And Joe, the thick-handed butcher from Minnesota, was left to raise his Madeline alone. Come on, Papa, she tugged on his hand. Let's dance before everyone arrives. She was right. Soon the doorbell would ring and the relatives would fill the floor and the night would be passed. But for now, it was just Papa and Madeline. Rebellion flew into Joe's world like a Minnesota blizzard. About the time she was old enough to drive, Madeline decided that she was old enough to lead her life, and that life did not include her father. I should have seen it coming, Joe would later say, but for the life of me, I didn't. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to handle the pierced nose and the tight skirts. He didn't understand the late nights and the poor grades, and most of all, he didn't know when to speak and when to be quiet. She, on the other hand, had it all figured out. She knew when to speak to her father, never. She knew when to be quiet, always. The pattern was reversed, however, with that lanky, tattooed kid from down the street. He was no good, and Joe knew it. And there was no way he was going to allow his daughter to spend Christmas Eve with that kid. 
You'll be with us tonight, young lady. You'll be at your grandma's house eating your grandma's pie. You'll be with us on Christmas Eve. Though they were at the same table, they might as well have been on different sides of town. Madeline played with her food and said nothing. Grandma tried to talk to Joe, but he was in no mood to chat. Part of him was angry, part of him was heartbroken. And the rest of him would have given anything to know how to talk to this girl who once sat on his lap. Soon the relatives arrived, bringing with them a welcome in to the awkward silence. As the room filled with noise and people, Joe stayed on one side. Madeline sat sullenly on the other. Put on the music, Joe, reminded one of his brothers. And so he did. Thinking that she would be honored, he turned and walked toward his daughter. Will you dance with your papa tonight? The way she huffed and turned, you'd have thought he'd insulted her. In full view of the family, she walked out the front door and marched down the sidewalk, leaving her father alone. Very much alone. Madeline came back that night, but not for long. Joe never faulted her for leaving. After all, what's it like being the daughter of a butcher? In their last days together, he tried so hard. He made her favorite dinner she didn't want to eat. He invited her to a movie. She stayed in her room. He bought her a new dress. She didn't even say thank you. And then there was that spring day. He left work early to be at the house when she arrived home from school. Wouldn't you know it, that was the day she never came home. A friend saw her and her boyfriend in the vicinity of the bus station. The authorities confirmed the purchase of a ticket to Chicago. Where she went from there was anybody's guess. The scrawny boy with the tattoos had a cousin. The cousin worked the night shift at a convenience store south of Houston. For a few bucks a month, he would let the runaways stay in his apartment at night, but they had to be out during the day, which was fine with them. They had big plans. He was going to be a mechanic, and Madeline just knew she could get a job at a department store. Of course, he knew nothing about cars, and she knew even less about getting a job. But you don't think about things like that when you're intoxicated on freedom. After a couple weeks, the cousin changed his mind. And the day he announced his decision, the boyfriend announced his. Madeline found herself facing the night with no place to sleep or hand to hold. It was the first of many such nights. A woman in the park told her about a homeless shelter near the bridge. For a couple bucks, she could get a bowl of soup and a cot. A couple of bucks was about all she had. She used her backpack as a pillow and her jacket as a blanket. The room was so rowdy that it was hard to sleep. Madeline turned her face to the wall and for the first time in several days thought of the whiskered face of her father as he would kiss her goodnight. But as her eyes began to water, she refused to cry. She pushed the memory deep inside and determined not to think about home. She had gone too far to ever go back. The next morning, the girl in the cot beside her showed her a fistful of tips she had made from dancing on tables. This is the last night I have to stay here, she said. Now I can pay for my own place. They told me they're looking for another girl. You should come by. She reached into her pocket and pulled out a matchbook. Here's the address, she said. Madeline's stomach turned at the thought. All she could do was mumble, I'll think about it. She spent the rest of the week on the streets looking for work. At the end of the week, when it was time to pay her bill at the shelter, she reached into her pocket and pulled out the matchbook. It was all she had left. I won't be staying tonight, she said. And she walked out the door. Hunger has a way of softening convictions. If Madeline knew anything, she knew how to dance. Her father had taught her. And now men the age of her father watched her. 
She didn't rationalize it. She just didn't think about it. Madeline simply did her work and took her dollars. She might have never thought about it except for the letters. The cousin brought them, not one or two, but a box full, all addressed to her, all from her father. Your old boyfriend must have squealed on you. These come two or three a week, complained the cousin. Give him your address. Oh, she couldn't do that. He might find her. Nor could she bear to open the envelopes. She knew what they said. He wanted her home, but if he knew what she was doing, he would not be writing. It seemed less painful not to read them, so she didn't. Not that week, nor the next when the cousin brought more, nor the next when he came again. She kept them in the dressing room at the club, organized according to postmark. She ran her finger over the top of each, but couldn't bring herself to open even one. Most days, Madeline was numb to the emotions. Thoughts of home and thoughts of shame were shoved into the same part of her heart. But there were occasions when the thoughts were too strong to resist. Like the time she saw a dress in the clothing store window, a dress the same color as the one her father had purchased for her, a dress that she had had been far too plain for her. With much reluctance, she had put it on and stood with him before the mirror. My, you are as tall as I am, he had told her. She had stiffened at his touch. Seeing her weary face reflected in the store window, Madeline realized she'd give a thousand dresses to feel his arm again. She left the store and resolved not to pass by it again. In time, the leaves fell, the air chilled. The mail came and the cousin complained and the stack of letters grew. Still, she refused to send him an address and she refused to read a letter. Then a few days before Christmas Eve, another letter arrived, same shape, same color, But this one had no postmark, and it was not delivered by the cousin. It was sitting on her dressing room table. A couple days ago, a big man stopped by and asked me to give this to you, explained one of the other dancers. Said you'd understand the message. He was here, she asked anxiously. The woman shrugged. Suppose he had to be. Madeline Madeline swallowed hard and looked at the envelope. She opened it and removed the card. I know where you are, it read. I know what you do. And that doesn't change the way I feel. What I've said in each letter is still true. But I don't know what you've said, Madeline declared. She pulled a letter from the top of the stack and read it. And then a second and then a third. And each letter had the same sentence. And each sentence asked the same question. In a matter of moments, the floor was littered with paper and her face was streaked with tears. Within an hour, she was on a bus. I might just make it in time. She barely did. The relatives were starting to leave. Joe was helping Grandma in the kitchen when his brother called from the suddenly quiet den. Joe, someone's here to see you. Joe stepped out of the kitchen and stopped. In one hand, the girl held a backpack. In the other, she held a card. Joe saw the question in her eyes. The answer is yes, she said to her father. If the invitation is still good, the answer is yes. Joe swallowed hard. Oh, my. Oh, my. The invitation is good. And so the two danced again on Christmas Eve. 
On the floor near the door rested a letter with Madeline's name and her father's request. Will you come home and dance with your papa again? God's invitation to you this Christmas is to come home. He knows where you've been. He knows what you've done. He knows your heart. And it doesn't change the way he feels. His invitation to you is to come home. Come home. Let's pray to him together, please. Oh, Father, (laughs) how we thank you for your love. So unbelievable and unexplainable. A love that transcends what we could have ever earned or deserved. And Father, I just thank you and praise you for the invitation to come home. To come home to you. To come home to your love. To come home to your purposes and your way. And Father, I just pray right now in this room, Father, just knowing that there's some folks that need to come home. And maybe they've been in a far-off land, or maybe they've been hanging around the house. But Father, today, today is a need to come home. And the invitation is still good. And the way has been paved because of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray today that you would call sons and daughters home, home to you. Father, I pray even right now knowing that there's many in this room who have someone that they love, someone that they love and care about who needs to come home. And I just pray with them right now, Father, would you move in their hearts wherever this morning finds that friend, that parent, that spouse, that child, that grandchild. Father, that you would stir in their hearts, that you would bring them to their senses. That they would come clean. They would come home. So that the music could strike up and we could celebrate. As you just sit before the Lord in these last few moments in this room. I'm going to invite you to take a look in your note-taking guide at that box. It says, Making It Personal. And as you just scan those...